This Farm Advisory Service podcast was recorded just before the UK went into lockdown. SSE consultant Chloe McCulloch spoke to Neil Wilson, formerly Head of Agriculture at HSBC and now an independent consultant and director of the Institute of Auctioneers and Appraisers in Scotland. The discussion was scheduled to be about Brexit and its impact on farmers. However, by the time the podcast was due to be recorded, a new challenge was becoming very clear. That challenge is COVID-19. We hope you enjoy the podcast and for more information, please visit the Farm Advisory Service website. Welcome to this Farm Advisory Service podcast. I'm Chloe McCulloch and today I'm speaking to Neil Wilson, former Head of Agriculture at HSBC and now an independent consultant. Neil, you're from farming stock, aren't you? Agriculture's in the blood. Oh, it's absolutely in the blood, yeah, and has been for ever and a day and I suspect will be forevermore. What sort of farming have you got at home? Uh, so at home just now we farm down just outside Kirkubri. It's a red meat unit, now predominantly sheep. We did have a, we did have a few cows up until, in fact I think we've maybe still got two belted galloways and being that we're in Dumfries and Galloway, but uh, yeah, we had a few cows, but uh, we've sort of gradually sort of pushed them out, and uh, and now we're really just uh, sheep, and we're even farther to the lambing at the moment. And do you still get much chance to be hands on? Ah, no, no, not not as much as a not a not as much as I would probably like, and and be just just not as much as I used to. You just as you I think as you get older, you get a bit busier, and business and family comes along, so the the days are taking your. Easter holidays to go lambing or your summer holidays to go and meet here so you're all and gone mm. my father's probably delighted because it sees me breaking stuff <laughs> so how did you get into banking then it sounds like you were maybe sort of shoved into oh, the banking nah, well, I don't you know get... whether I was shoved uh, how did I get into banking they were definitely by luck rather than judgement anyway so uh, so my family background was there was a there was a sort of sizable farm in the family that was lost to a really poor inheritance plan and exercise in the late eighties. So that's why I'd be pretty passionate about people getting succession plans in place. It, mum and dad sort of started again early nineties, bought a bit of land, um, and at that point in time, I was probably quite keen to go and do a bit of farming. Mother's a teacher, so she sort of like you said. Um, forcefully encouraged me to go and get a further education. Uh, I don't quite know whether it was much to have discussed or not. I think she had views of an accountant or a lawyer in the family, but I decided I was going to go and do a degree in agriculture. Ended up in Edinburgh and, uh, yes, I graduated. Just tail end of the 90s BSE crisis and kind of going back to farming at that point in time wasn't really, you know, especially in a a, livestock unit probably wasn't most exciting thing to be doing. So I decided to look elsewhere. No idea what I wanted to do. Clydesdale Bank turned up did a, did a university, did a sort of careers talk one day and I shrugged the shoulders, thought, well, I better go do something. So stuck an application in there for a graduate scheme, somehow was accepted and there you go. That was in 1997 and I stuck it for 22 years. So... I mean, are there similarities between banking and farming? You've seen both sides. You're dealing in risk all the time. It's really what you're doing. You know, know, farming, agriculture, it's all all about risk and your attitude to risk and how you you deal with what gets thrown at you. And banking is just, you know, it's not exactly the same because they're different different risks, but it is all a risk management exercise. I suspect business in general is a risk management exercise. You, you're now an independent consultant. What does that yep. involve? It's so the area of sort of advisory I was what get involved in was much more around about that strategic planning element. Not necessarily going in and, and sort of budgeting for people, things like that, but more... If I looked in a farming sense, a lot of family businesses that have expanded got bigger, got bigger. Still family businesses, but actually they now need to think a lot more about the government's exercises that go on on farm. You know, it's it's it can be quite a difficult discipline to make sure that actually you get sat around the table once a month to talk about where the business is going, make sure the right management practices are in place, and also some of these businesses who probably want to take that next step in expansion or adding enterprises on, but actually that would then take it outside of being sort of a family control. You know, then they would need to start adding some extra people into management positions in the business and that 
from for a family business, whether you're farming or not, I suspect that feels like it's a it becomes a massive jump and becomes the hurdle. So a lot of that's helping them put the building blocks in place to be able to, to move on. It's helping them to manage that transition from being the typical farming family absolutely. family business to, to, to what is the next step. Yeah, absolutely. But just, you know, let's not get ourselves carried away here. It's not it's not corporate farming or anything by any stretch of the imagination, but it, but it is it's adding more layers into that business. And the people are really important. Um, thinking about the really, you know, the successful farming businesses, um, that you know, are there common characteristics of the people that you could identify? Um, so I think they're what I do tend to find is they 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 get they get off farm quite a lot. They're not they don't really get hung up in and looking round about at, at what's happening in farming. They'll 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 have, they'll have sort of a wider view. They'll be a lot more business orientated. You know, they're, they're probably as likely to be reading, you know, The Economist as they are the Scottish farmer, for example. Uh, and they just, they, they view farming and agriculture as a, as a business rather necessarily than a, than a way of life. That's not to say that viewing it as a way of life is, is wrong, you know, that's probably the type of farming family I come from. But it's, you know, we do it because we enjoy it, it's part of what we've been brought up with. Um, but we've never made that jump into being, you know, entrepreneurial or or moving into expansion. Um, the so as well as that, the the also uh, they're also looking for opportunity all the time. So they might be dairy farming today. It doesn't necessarily mean that they won't add an extra enterprise on at some point in time. That's that's not actually dairy farming. I suspect they would like to be more expansive in the industry they know more about, but. It's not really to the exclusion of, of all others. And I would say I'd enterprise on rather than diversification because that's for these people that's not really what it is. It's it is much more of a sort of step forward in their wider business. A sort of mixed portfolio of activities. That, that type of idea, yeah, yeah. And I think the other the other uh, thing they've got is uh, the people who run the business are very interested in the people who work in the business. Um, I've done a couple of panel sessions of late, and one thing that keeps coming up is, you know, obviously with, with Brexit and the challenges around about immigration that might come down the line, but, but it's also a, a sort of longer-held problem in the industry about how do we get people to come and work in agriculture and farming industry. And that's not just on-farm, but that's all the way through to, you know, what we do as consultants, you know, working in the trade, all of those. Kind of, how do we encourage people... Uh, to do that, but particularly the question comes from farmers, so on farm, um, and one of the things I I would always say, which is normally quite controversial, unfortunately, is that actually <clears throat> on farm we're not always great employers. You were not we're not that great at looking after staff. We get them in and then we want to work them almost to the bone, and, and we sicken them a lot of the time. I think that the businesses that are able. The businesses who do go and expand and do step forward take a lot more interest in their, in the people that work for them, you know, and they're sort of more motivated. They're really good at, at getting them on board with what they do. They'll do things like they'll get them in and talk to them about where the business is going, what the strategy might be, what opportunities might arise for them. It's not all about how much I pay them, which I think is a lot of the time we come back to in farming as well. It's, got to pay them it's not all about that it's just about that wider element of of things so i think those are the the keys behind the the operators of these businesses and how they sort of make their way forward and how they grow their business and have you seen any particularly innovative or interesting ways that these farming employers are involving staff who are perhaps not uk nationals yeah, well, uh, one of the businesses I do quite a lot of work with, actually, they do, um, for the more senior staff, they do equity purchase in the business. So they'll, they'll, it's a dairy business, so they let them buy into to the cows. So so those individuals need to prove themselves within that business to start off with. And then, you know, once that sort of managerial role, so probably looking after their own farm at that point in time, they'll have the opportunity to to buy in and actually most most of those at the moment are from Ireland rather so they're not UK nationals you know but I think that's a 
what what the other people in that business can see is there's there's an opportunity for progression within there. You know, if they do the right things and, and uh, you know, they add value back to the business, they will get opportunities to to buy in and take advantage of that. And I think that's a for bigger farm businesses and growing farm businesses, I don't think it's not going to suit everyone, certain models, but I don't think that's something that we should ignore. And I think a lot of the time just now it's it's the exception rather and it shouldn't be a rule, but you know, it's it's a very exceptional type of scenario that whereas I think in a more businesses could probably grow and expand and improve quicker if they maybe involved their staff a little bit more closely in what they were they were doing. It's not giving away the family silver, but it's just giving them more of a an incentive to perform better. Well you want really good people to come into the business and you want these people to have ambition and drive and to try and yeah. you know push push yeah. push forward. So yeah. I suppose you, you need to show them, you know, the the, the goal. Absolutely. So see where they're going. Absolutely. Um, we sometimes see some businesses who will have um, some quite, particularly in the dairy sector, things like um, you know standard operating procedures for yeah. some of the processes, like milking processes, and they'll have these in multiple languages. Uh-huh. You'll come across that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I've seen that up in you know you go around, you see them up in in parlors and and buildings round about, and you know. I, I, I think I think the reality is that okay, who knows what things what might happen in, in in the future, but the industry here has been more open or has been very open to sort of non UK labour coming in. People might say, well, it's had to be. But the reality is it has been as well and, and I think a lot of farm businesses have coped well um with the fact that there are there are people coming in who might not necessarily English isn't necessarily going to their first language. Their culture's not exactly the same. You know, what farmers are very good at, which a lot of other businesses aren't, is they're very good at, you know, the provision of housing, for example. They're very good at helping them integrate into the community because farming's still a very sort of community-driven business a lot of the time. Uh, you know, and, and I think that's... We shouldn't overlook that, particularly in rural areas, farming's sort of one of the, one of the key employers and, and probably one of the better payers. If we can help people... Come in, you know. If you look at the if you look at the wider economy in Scotland, if it wasn't for immigration, we'd have a decrease in population. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's it's pretty important for a lot of these places that families are coming in, keeps the schools open, all of those kind of things too. We are recording this in the middle of March. There is quite a lot going on at the moment. Brexit has been somewhat dwarfed by mm-hmm. coronavirus and COVID nineteen. Mm-hmm. With all that in mind. What do you think are the biggest challenges facing Scottish farmers at the moment? Yeah, if you'd asked me that question a week ago, you might have got a slightly different answer to this. Um, yeah, well, you said it. I mean, I think, I think regardless of whether Scottish farmers think or don't think it's the number one challenge, it's, it's coronavirus and COVID-19 and whatever that might actually bring through. Not necessarily, I think, to might not be directly to a lot of farm gates. <clears throat> um, although, you know, there's always the chance if you're a if you're a reasonable employer that, you know, if you start looking at some of the stats that are getting rolled out, there's a fair chance that one of your employees may well come in contact with it at some point in time. So starting to think about, you know, strategies about how you actually deal with the people on the farm to make sure that you, you can remain operational. But the big thing at the moment I, you're starting to see is this, this supply chain issue. I'm not necessarily, you know, don't relate that to the panic buying you see in the shops and the fact that there's empty shelves all over the place. Um, talking to some of these wholesalers and, and the retailers, they would say that the stock's there. It's the challenge of having, you know, actually enough bodies on the ground to get stuff back on the shelves. But as this goes on and borders close and you might see, you know, uh, airplanes are grounded and who knows what happens with boats and things like that and actually supply chains might get a bit more difficult, a bit trickier to, to move stuff around, you know, if, if we're relying on imported feed from around the world, you know, who knows how we get that shifted at some point in time in the future. Uh, most corporate businesses, and I know farming would argue and say, well, we're not a corporate 
business. But most corporate businesses would have sort of business continuity plan in place, you know, an interruption plan or some description. To oh, goodness, uh, you know, what small percentage of Scottish or UK farms are going to have that type of plan in place? And actually, just burying the head in the sand on it, we can't do it. I mean, I was saying to you coming in this morning, you know, somebody on the phone saying, right, look, I'm, you know, let, let's get a plan together. Well, actually, that's a bit of bad advice for me because we should have had this done necessarily for, for coronavirus, but just anything happens, you know, we just suddenly you think, Crikey, I've not got anything. I've not actually got a fallback position here if, if something goes wrong. So, uh, you know, there's that. But these businesses who are identifying the need for, we need a plan, now at this stage when in Scotland we've got advice to restrict mass gatherings of over 500 people, but schools are still open, people are still encouraged to get to work. You know, it's still business as normal, and yet yep. some farmers are already coming to you and saying, we need the plan now. So that sort of proactive thinking is still... They are still ahead of the curve. Yeah, oh no, absolutely. But I think it probably does show us as well in, in a lot of ways that, you know, I would say a lot of other commercial businesses would have, not necessarily to line up for this, but they would have some sort of plan in place, whether it be for a, a fire at the premises or, you know, something else happening. Whereas, and I think on farms, and this is, you know, it's going to sound like a criticism, it's not, it's just a reality thing, is... That sort of stuff's quite well down the list, frankly. But we know why, you know, because there's all these other things coming along and, and probably the next thing I would come on to is the, is the massive challenge for Scottish farming is, is just the economics of trying to be a farmer in this day and age. You know, we could, we could bat on down the climate change route and the environmental pressures that are coming on and the changes in diet and all of that kind of stuff. But that all feeds into to the economics to me, you know, particularly in, in red meat, but across quite a lot of Scottish agriculture. If, there, if there's no money to be made and there's no cash left in the pot at the end of the year, or I've actually had to dig deeper into the overdraft facility to keep to keep going, we can't do any of this other stuff. We can't do the business continuity plans and, and we can't do, or we struggle to do the, the sort of climate change uh, stuff that we might be getting thrown at is it just becomes really tough, and you just need to look at the last few years the way that livestock numbers in particular have started to go. You know, more and more people sort of going, okay, this is this is tough. This is really tough to try and make money on this. And I I would always come back. You look at coronavirus. You look at Brexit. You look at immigration. Whatever it might be, the economics will be the thing that either make or break this industry. And if we have a big change in policy at some point in time and that moves support in a different direction, then, you know, that that's going to be a real challenge for this industry. It's a challenge enough at the moment, that's going to be a bigger challenge. Do you think what's going on at the moment might make consumers a bit more appreciative of UK farmers? Do you think that um, domestic consumption might become a bit more important? I think it will take a while for that to sink in, if I'm being honest. I, mean, I really don't like slating the consumer because we need them to buy our stuff. Going, going in the attack with them really is probably not the way, not the way for us to be going. But I don't think so. I think the globalisation piece has become such a part, of, particularly in, in the UK, and it was a big part of the Brexit argument too, you know, this globalisation piece, you know, all this stuff that was coming out from ministers about, well, we can get food from wherever we like, we don't need X, Y and Z, and... I suppose we've got the track record that, you know, the shopper will stand outside of the supermarket and say, yeah, I'll buy a local food and I want it to be this, that and the next thing. And the minute they go in and there's something else on the shelf that's a little bit cheaper, not all the time, but by and large, that's the thing that ends up in the trolley. And you look at all of the Kantar and all these people who do all of these sort of surveys and stuff would tell you that the behaviour in the supermarket is different from the rhetoric outside of it. Mm. I suppose the only thing that will probably get the UK consumer to think a lot more about buying um, UK produce is if these global supply chains do end up taking a tumble during during this coronavirus outbreak. And, you know, actually, and literally there isn't anything on the shelves, you know, forget the panic buying bit, but there's a bit of an interruption. 
but actually day after day there's 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 just nothing there. Gaps on yeah, on, 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 on yeah. shelves. I mean, in the in the past, it's debatable if the if the consumer has understood the nature of the just in time supply chains that we have. Yeah. But my goodness, in the last week, it's become quite apparent that, as you say, the material, the stuff is there, but actually getting things is where they need to be, and yeah. that's a relatively minor blip. That's, no, absolutely. Yeah. There isn't stuff sitting at a port somewhere that we can't get moved. It is just just getting it through the chain. You know, it's it's getting it's getting that. Getting that fat beast into the abattoir, getting it, getting it killed, getting it hung, getting it, getting it through that process, and then onto the shelf. I mean, all this stuff's coming through, but as mm-hmm. you said, it's not backed up. Mm-hmm. You know, it's there's not there's not this big sort of supply sitting in warehouses somewhere that can just suddenly be be brought out. And you can understand why. You know, when you look at everybody through that food chain. Is working on 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 fairly tight margins and, and low levels of profitability. You can argue all day long about who who gets the best out of it. I suspect it's the consumer ultimately. But when you look at that margin, nobody can be sitting on big piles of stock tying cash up because they just it would just be jiggered really. You know, cash flows everything would be would be done for. So they've had they've had to move to that over time. Thinking specifically about Brexit, where do you think the challenges are coming from? Where do I think the challenge? The challenges are going to come from uh, trade deals, and uh, I think we got we probably during the Brexit process we get a bit hung up in policy. Oh, what's going to happen with cap and subsidy and all that kind of stuff? And actually, anyway, with a previous hat on at the bank, I would stand up and say, look, you know, but doesn't it really matter what they do with policy if they if they sell agriculture up the river in a future trade deal, you know, three or three and a half billion a year is probably not going to cover the gap. You know, we need to be getting more, and is that likely? So the big thing for me has always been about what type of trade deals are they going to do? What sort of access are they going to give to our market? And if they do go down the route of trade deals with the states or whoever, you know, I think the big four are, is it Japan, America, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, something like that, isn't it? You know, if you look at a few of them, there's not a massive amount in in it for us as, as UK farming. It feels like it's all agricultural produce coming in the way. Do you think chlorinated chicken, hormone-treated beef, these things, if we roll forward five, ten years, are we just going to have these as the norm? Is it coming? Unfortunately, I think it's coming because there will just be something too tasty in a trade deal between Britain and America. You know, the Americans have been absolutely crystal clear since day one. Agriculture will be at the top of our trade negotiation. That That's it. And those those things are part of it. And there's this debate here, isn't there, about well, will the consumer take that or not? If you're a working family on a low wage in the middle of Glasgow and you're going into Aldi or Widow on a budget, you've got a family to feed. And if, if the coronated chickens a pound cheaper than the Scottish chickens sitting beside it the shelf. As, as Scottish agriculture, we can go on and talk about our standards and everything as much as we possibly can, but, but that family going in that day to try and feed three or four of them or whatever, I'm, I'm really sorry. that I think they're just going to go for the cheaper version. And that assumes that they'll know that there's a reason why that's the cheaper version and that you know labelling doesn't become an issue as well about yeah. what, what can they actually see on a label. Chloe, I think it goes beyond labelling. I mean, we've, we've lost, this maybe takes a bit further on and we can come back to Brexit, but it's actually, we, we've lost, as an industry, we've, we've lost our ability to, to talk to people about what we do. You've know, kind of lost a generation of that sort of 20 to 40 year old, really, where we never, they were never engaged through school, I mean, I went, I went to a rural school, but there was really very little taught about agriculture or food or anything like that, you know, and that was in the late 80s, early 90s. You know, I would say over the last few years with the Royal Highland Education Trust, you know, our school that my kids go to, they now do like a rural skills course, those kind of things. It's, it feels like it's coming back in, but we've lost this generation, yeah, there's this gap who, whether we like it or not, they don't get that, and, and I think even the labelling, we're involved with the industry, so we probably, 
in some way, shape or form understand the labelling, but you go around a supermarket just now and you look at the labelling. What type of badges has it got all over it? You know, is it Scotch beef? Is it, is it QMS? Is it Red Tractor? Is it, who does what? And I just wonder sometimes if it's just not clear enough to the consumer and it's a bit like, I think it's British, so if I like to buy British, I'll pop it in. If it's cheaper, it's cheaper. I'll trust the fact that the supermarket and the government say it can be in the shelf. I trust that that is, I trust that we've got a safe food policy in some way, shape or form. So if it's there, I work on the basis that as long as they eat it by the sell-by date or whatever, then, then it's fine. It'll be fine. Aye. I suppose there's the added element that's come in in the last month or two, which is if we roll forward six to 12 months, we may have a population with lower incomes, you know, global recession, um, cheap food is yep. only going to become more important. And I suppose yeah. at a government stroke policy level, presumably feeding people cheaply has just gone up a notch or two, as opposed to maintaining existing standards. It doesn't feel to me as if it ever came off being a high policy. You know, it was, it's never really even been something that's been up for debate at all, is the fact that, that the UK government wants a cheap food policy or an affordable sort an affordable food policy is probably the best way to put it, you know, and no no minister either north or south of the border or in Wales or Northern Ireland I think would ever step out of line in that one. Yes, I think they would like to see if you speak to them, I think they would like to see more money going back to the to the primary producer. But if, that, if that's to have a big impact on the shelf price, then I don't think many would be keen for that. What do you think that Scottish farmers can do to strengthen their hand? I think we need to look much more closely at what the export opportunities are. I was at a QMS conference two, three weeks ago up in Glasgow, and uh, James Withers from Scotland Food and Drink stood on the stage and said something that I'd, I kind of really hadn't heard from you know, a, a leader in the industry outside of, of, you know, pure farming stock that said, look, if we think that we're going to add value to our products, now you're talking about red meat at this particular point in time, but you, you could probably say this for a whole range of, of, of Scottish product. If we think we're going to add value and, and get an economic benefit out of serving the UK, where there's five or six main retailers, the chances are that there were not we need to look beyond these shores. Whiskey and salmon are, are great examples of how that can be done. Why can't we do it with, you know, or, or we should be able to do it with, with Scotch beef, Scotch lamb, you know, that branding. So as an industry, can we start looking beyond these shores? And I think we've always talked a lot about we've got 65 million people here to feed, all those kind of things, but actually it feels like we've got 64.9 million that don't really want to pay much for it. We're so, in the trap of being inward looking yeah, when we need to be outward absolutely. looking. So, so can we find, you know, the, the converse and the one thing I always hope is using, for example, the American trade deal where we, we might have to give up on taking coronated chicken and potentially hormone-treated beef is can we get more scotch, lamb and beef and dairy products going the other way into a higher value market. And a huge market. A huge market. Speaking. You know, if you look at, well, it's, it's just sums it easy, aren't they? Top 10% earners in the UK is going to lead you to 6.5 million people. Well, it's five times the size in the States. So you get more people, hopefully, looking at premium product. And I think what, what we would always hear is that you know, the Scotch brand is, is well regarded across the globe. So it's important that we continue to develop the Scotch brand and and maintain standards at our end and, and not fall into the trap of trying to compete with the hormone beef guys? I think so, but a lot of that will depend on how this industry lobbies uh, policy makers and, and MPs and MSPs as we go through this process, you know, and I think we're, we're, we're probably too good at, you know, um, putting stuff down the road and letting it go out the farm gate and then worrying about somebody else marketing it whereas actually 
the whole as a whole industry we need to take more responsibility uh, around about how we how we market our product. Now that's not to say it's not just me saying, you know, that for us at home, for example, you know, we've got some lambs ready to go and, and we should be thinking about how we're gonna market these individually. We should be thinking about that, but actually the bigger picture here, what do we want as an industry and how we're gonna get it? And you know, writing letters to the Scottish farmer, frankly, is not gonna get us very far. You know, we need to be getting beyond that bit of lobbying as individuals as well as through, you know, the unions and the institute auctioneers and all of those kind of people. You know, it's actually as individuals we can do a lot too. And and you know, I think MPs and MSPs and policymakers, they like to hear what we would like. Whether we get it or not, different story entirely. But if we don't say anything, somebody else is going to come in and fill that void and might not be talking as positively about our industry as we would. Have you got any thoughts about how you think the financial sector might view Scottish or UK farming after Brexit? So the financial sector after the, the crash in 2007-2008 had been through quite a bit of turmoil in its own regard. Um, what a change in policy effect and that, what a change in regulation, sort of um, making sure that banks were more able to cope with you know, the next crisis that might befall them and the next crisis that might, might actually be here right now with coronavirus and what that might do to, to businesses across the, the globe. And you could see even just from the Bank of England's announcement last week, you know, half a percent interest rate cut, which, okay, you know, for half a percent, it's great. It's, it's money in the bank if you're a borrower. Not so good if you've got cash in the bank. But also this sort of view that they were going to put more money into the economy. And it sounded to me, I'm not involved in banking anymore, but it sounded to me like they were sort of saying to the banks, look, all this capital we've sort of been asking you to put away in the background for the sort of rainy day, as you might call it, you can maybe start bringing some of that back out. So for a little while, that's going to keep things going. But, you know, in effect, the regulators would say that if you're a bank and you're lending money to, to a business whether it's a farm or not, to a business that can't afford to repay it, then actually you need to treat this business as a sort of distressed case and there's a whole lot of other things you need to, to do with it. And it can be a very expensive exercise for a bank to do that. This is not a sympathy vote for banks, this is just the reality of the situation. Any farm business that's looking just now and, and actually they're not profitable or they've got no cash retained at the year end, it's going to be a real challenge I think even now to to bring banks on board with with that, and it goes outside. Just it goes it goes beyond the the sort of financial element of that as well. Banks want to banks look for a story, and I don't mean a Jack and Ori story. I, I mean you know what's the story of the business? Who are the people involved? What's the future? What's their experience? What's their background? How can they make whatever venture work? particularly if they want to look at expansion or an add-on or something like that. And I think too often we're very good at going, oh, well, I've got lots of security. You know, I, I, my gearing's really low. It's kind of like, it doesn't matter how low your gearing is, if you can't make cash to afford or to repay the borrowing over a reasonable period of time, then it, it becomes difficult for a bank to get involved. Now, fast forward, your question was post-Brexit, so you'll start to look at next year and beyond. I mean, in Scotland, I've sort of said, look, policy is probably going to stay, you know, um, stability and simplicity, I think, wasn't it? You know, we're, we're, going, to, we're, going, to be, we're going to kind of be doing what we're doing for the next sort of two, three years, so to 2024. So on one hand, there's a bit of a view there, right? We've got a bit of income security, there's probably still going to be subsidy coming in. The flip side is going to be the trade deal. That You know, if those trade deals start to bring our prices down, we're going to need every penny of that subsidy coming in. But what it does do is it should give businesses a bit of a chance to sort of think, right, what is the future going to look like? I've got an element of subsidy income coming through. I can go and sit and have an open discussion with the bank about what the future might look like for me here. And we might have some income coming through to keep us going for a couple of years where we make the changes. 
but you would still need to convince the bank that it's the right thing. You would still need to convince the bank from a management point of view that you can make it work. And the key thing is that even if, even if at this point we don't know how things are going to turn out, that is not a reason not to prepare a budget now nope. and understand what do you need in the next two to ten years in terms of yeah. cash flow to, to, to you know, service your existing commitments and then you can find out more information as it becomes available as to how likely you are yeah, absolutely. To, be, to, to be able to generate that. It's prepare your budget and then sensitise it. Because so, I think sometimes in the industry we've, we've probably got a bit into the trend of doing, you know, plus or minus a penny on milk, plus or minus 10 quid a ton on cereals or whatever, actually, to get a bit, a bit more in-depth than that. You know, actually, if this if this particular thing happens, so if this trade deal happens, well, what might you do? It might not 25% of my, of my output income, so... How's that going to cope? Do you think there's a reticence about doing that exercise because farmers are concerned that it will demonstrate that there's going to be a big gap and they're going to struggle to fill it and it's the mm-hmm. being aware of bad news? Yeah, I think so. I think to themselves, as much as anybody else, I don't, I don't think it's necessarily a... OK, there's a bit of a fear factor of then going and sort of showing the bank this kind of stuff, but actually it's, it's a bit of the acknowledgement themselves that this might not be a pretty picture and what changes might they need to make and I think particularly when you look at what stage of life a lot of them might actually be at you know the, the encouragement to change you know if you're if you're if you're working away farming and you're maybe in your 50s you think you get another five to ten years of really active farming ahead of you you might not have a successor and suddenly you start looking at things like that it's it's it's, it's really tough to get your head around about you know and, and those businesses will need a lot of support not just financially but you know just a lot of advisory support a lot of management support you know probably a lot of emotional support as well to make sure that they can either decide now to move on with their you know their dignity intact they might even what to set up in some sort of joint venture with a, a new star or somebody who's a, earlier on in the career where you've got an individual who can sort of give them a bit of experience and a bit of uh, the, the university of life type of stuff but then you've got the enthusiastic person coming into the business that is happy to tackle some of these challenges that might come. And if somebody is doing a budget and identifying that there is a gap and they're not sure that they can or want to start taking those actions to reduce that shortfall. You can do a lot of damage in three, four, five years of mm-hmm. you know doing nothing and letting the overdraft build up. Yep. There is a lot to be said for lands the thing now while yeah. you have a whole range of options yeah, available absolutely. to you rather than dig yourself into a hole. Absolutely. You know, I think... And it does, it really depends on the situation the individual finds themselves in. You know, they might sit there and go, you know, I'm sitting in a, I'm sitting in a million pound asset, for example, and, and my overdraft's £25,000. If I burn another £25,000 hole in my equity for the next five years, well, look, I can live with that. And if, if, if the bank will support me in five years' time, I'll, I'll, I'll do something different. That's it. That's what I want to do. That's my outlook life. I'm going to retire here and that's it. Move on. People might accept that. And I've seen that. saw that a lot in banking. You go out to the older farming family, the older couple usually as it would be. You know, they'd probably be in their 60s. They're finding life tough, but they just kind of give up their cows or they kind of give up the sheep or whatever. You know, and actually the reality is they sit there and go, I'm only going to do this for another five years and, and, and I'm, you know, I'm losing you know, five, ten grand a year, whatever at it. I don't mind. That's fair. I'm happy with that. Would the bank support me? Right. It can be a bit tricky for a bank to support that, back to what I said earlier. But in reality, I think most of the time, you know, there's a bit of, there's a bit of common sense goes on in there and, and you know, usually, it usually kind of works. But, you know, like you said, you start to look at different scenarios Um where you know, there's maybe a bit more gearing involved in the business and, and then that becomes much more of a challenge. 
And there are a lot of sources of support out there for people if they were concerned about what a budget might show. Like yeah. There are lots of places that they can go for help. And uh, uh, absolutely. And, and I think one thing I saw when I was in the bank, and one of the reasons that took the step out, came out of the bank and, and went into sort of the advisory world was I could see a lot of times where farm businesses were getting a, I don't know, like a land management plan done or or a set of budgets done and, and effectively going, right, that's it done, you know, hand it to the bank or whatever and then I stick that copy in the in the drawer. And they didn't continue to employ a you or a B or whatever, you know, there to sort of make that next step. And, and what I would say is, you know, I think sometimes we get focused on the budget bit of it. To me, the budgets are just, that's just the starting point. That's the, that's the, that's you're on the box for that. The whole bit that comes after that and where farm businesses get more value is by then pinning any one of us to the wall and sort of going, right, well, what are we going to do now? What have you seen? What's your experience? Because we, <laughs> we've got the beauty of going round about loads and loads of farm businesses and seeing what different people are doing you know and trying to help them out and sometimes it is about having the honest conversation about well actually you know is it right to keep going but equally we've all, we've all seen the we've all seen the great underlying business you know that's likes shiny things driving about the yard or whatever it might be you know and actually you could say to them look actually got a very good business here we just need to make a few tweaks and things around about the edges and actually you, you could rediscover your profitability so I suppose one thing I would say farmers who are listening to this is you know don't just think getting the budgets done is, is it that's just the starting point to me invest the extra time and of course the extra money but invest that in the next steps because there's a lot of experience out there that can help you make the right management decisions that best for your future, whatever that might be. Thinking about how we're presenting um, what we produce to the market, you've recently taken on a role at the IAAS, which is the Institute of Auctioneers and Appraisers in Scotland. Yes. That will give you an interesting perspective, does it? It does. I know it my, you know, there is a bit of my background involved in in the auctioneering business, my dad's an auctioneer as well as, as being a farmer, so you know, I've always dragged round about a number of markets round about the country as a boy. Um, and actually it was quite a good summer job when I was young too, doing a bit of droving and things. So I've got I've got a contact um there historically. But yeah, I think it, the, the bit for me that's interesting in in that uh, in the way we market livestock as an example and this is quite a big debate that I suppose we're getting into as the institute at the moment is how important the live ring should continue to be uh, you know we brought some figures out a couple of weeks ago that showed that still you know it's 482 million pounds worth of livestock traded through the the Scottish auction rings you know it's just a pretty significant amount of trade created in rural areas um you know, majority of that on the cattle side is, is store livestock and then sheep at stores breeding and, and finished. Um, but more of a debate coming along the lines about, well, you know, where where is the auction mark's place? Because actually you look at a lot of people wanting more integration in the system, all of those kind of things. And the, the bit that I would always say is if you look at the if you look at the auction market sector, it's an open ring, transparent, fair. You take your stuff there, somebody comes and buys it if they want it. You know, we can argue all day long about, oh, well, you know, we need certain specification animal and this, that and the next thing, but we don't think about the buyer in this. Tesco might have a certain specification for an animal, but the butcher in the local town has got a different specification. And some of the different markets we serve as an industry have different specifications. So not everybody's looking for the same thing. And the example I've given quite a lot recently is that when you look at integrated supply chains, um, I suppose when I was in the bank, you know, there was a bit of... In integrated supply chains, you always take a bit of the view that there was a bit of risk taken out. There was probably a little bit more risk sharing should go on. 
I think the reality of that is that that's just that's just nonsense. That's a fallacy. Um, and if I look at one of the most integrated supply chains has, has been the broiler sector. So, you know, effectively you've got broilers on farm, processor, retailer, job job done. No open market, a very little open market stuff, certainly not done by the farmers anyway. When I when I joined HSBC, I think in twenty twelve, there was a big push on then in Northern Ireland and in further south in England for broiler sheds. God, we need more chicken, more chicken, that's the thing, everybody's eating chicken. Uh, you could put up a broiler shed at that time, probably pay it off to the bank in five to seven years. And then it became ten. And then it became twelve. And you're probably now looking in fact speaking to somebody last not sorry, last month who was looking for between 15 and 20 years to repay their investment in a broiler unit. That is what fully integrated supply chains can do. During that time, you think, what does a broiler chicken take to get through the system? 37, 38 days? Their genetic gain has got to be great. You know, Eva Jane aren't sitting there doing nothing about this. They're try to get feed conversion efficiencies up. So so all it strikes to me is every efficiency that the farmers find has gone somewhere else in the chain. My concern is exactly the same. You look at you look at milk contracts that are straight into retailers, okay, they might have a slightly uh, less volatile price, but they get asked to do more and more and more. And it probably cannot, you know, let's be honest, the price is probably set at a level that means that the farmer makes enough to keep them going. But doesn't make them much. They have to innovate to keep going rather than innovate to increase their margin. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, and my concern is if we get further down that route in red meat that we're going to see that the value stripped out. You know, we, I think the gains that farmers make get taken by the chain. I'm not saying that they shouldn't be shared with the chain. But it, it feels like it all gets taken by the chain. You know, how far have we moved on with milk price, for example, in the last 10 or 15 years? Not, not that far in particular. Where have we moved on with input prices? Probably quite dramatically. And farmers have had to become more and more efficient in other areas to make sure that they can, they can keep going. Don't get me wrong, this is not a me saying we shouldn't be efficient. We should be as efficient as we can possibly be. But we need to be make sure we get rewarded for it. And I think that's where the auction round kind of stays in its own there because in that environment, you know, people have got to come and compete for what they want. If, you, if you're going to bring poor stock into the auction market, you're going to get a poor price for it, let's be honest. But if you bring good stock in and it appeals to three or four buyers, I think you've got an opportunity to create a market. And if you look at the sheep price over the last uh, two, three months, a lot of that uptick in price has been driven by what's been happening in the, in the ring. And I think if that was a, an integrated system where the ring was cut out, would we have seen that spike in prices? At, who knows? I'm not convinced that we would have seen the same because the competition wouldn't have been there for So... In conclusion, if you had a key bit of advice for farmers as we head into the coming weeks and months, mm-hmm. what would that one bit of advice be? Uh, absolutely. Understand where your business sits at the moment, both in your own eyes, so how you think it should sit versus where it actually does. And also, as a sort of comparison benchmark to what your peers might be doing. And that'll give you a good idea about where you might go in the future. And also just open your eyes to things that you might need to do and act on now. Burying heads in sand or sitting in hands or however you want to put it, you know, hoping that somebody else is going to sort problems out for you really, you know, is, is a recipe for disaster in my opinion, you know. Make sure you know where your business sits. Then you can make some decisions off the back of it. And that's not just financially great, 
budgets and up-to-date management information are super, but equally just look from the skills perspective, have you got the right people? You know, have you got too much kit? You know, are, are you are you selling your stuff in the right, whatever the stuff might be, is it, are you selling in the right place? Are you producing what the market wants? There's a whole raft of things out there, but the overarch, the umbrella to that really is just about properly understanding what your business is, where it sits and what it's about. And then you can start making some decisions about where you want it to be in the future. And there is Scottish Government support available mm-hmm. to help towards the costs of doing that. There's the Integrated Land Management Plan where there's up to 80% grant funding. But there is also um, still a resilience grant available yeah. of up to £1,000 to yeah. help with that, that, that review exercise. Yeah, and, and I, that's, I would say you're absolutely right. If people haven't taken advantage of that money, it's there to be used. Utilise it, take it. At the very least, it's going to give you a starting point. It's going to take a line in the sand that you can start to review and move forward from. But again, back to my earlier point, don't then, you know, as a farm business, don't then just go, thanks for that, stick it in the drawer. Use that as the base to move forward. Deal with the right people. Take the advice when you can get it, you know, and actually help your business flourish. Because there's lots and lots of things out there. There's lots and lots of opportunities. Uh, for people to grow their business or take their business in another direction. There's lots of, you know, we always talk about this industry being really difficult to get into. Lots of young people out there who are keen to come in who might just take a different view in life. Um, And actually, if you're a farm owner, occupier, and you don't know what to do next, just maybe start talking to about the land matching service and things like that. Just just start that conversation. You don't necessarily need to do anything with it, but just start looking at what other opportunities might be there for you. Well, you know, majority of these people want to stay in the farm, want to stay in the house. You know, they don't want the upheaval, but maybe looking out the back door every morning is a bit, uh, you know, a journey too far for some people getting. So there's lots of different advice out there and there's lots of different opportunities. So don't, don't close your mind to any of that. So you can get information about these grants from your advisor or consultant or on the FAS website at www.fas.scot. That was really, really interesting and thought-provoking. Thank you. Hope it was. Conversation.